Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Trial Tested is a discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Dave Paul, and I will be your host for today's episode. I'm here today with Barbara Periente. Barbara is a former Chief Justice of the Florida Supreme Court, where she served for more than 20 years. She's a former judge with the Fourth District Court of Appeals. She had a successful career as a trial lawyer where she was board certified as a trial lawyer by both the Florida Bar and the National Board of Trial Advocacy. She is a very accomplished jurist and a great human being, and it's my privilege today to talk with Barbara Periente. Welcome. Thank you. Well, uh, where I'd love to start is knowing a little context for kind of the world that you grew up in and how that shaped you towards the practice of law or frankly just shaped you, period. We're recording this on January 27th, which is Holocaust Remembrance Day. And I thought that was fitting because I grew up in the aftermath of the most well, we thought at the time, certainly the most devastating genocide in history. There have been others before and after, but nothing quite as targeted as this. And it shaped me because I, at an early age, had awareness of how prejudice could affect people in such a hateful way as to cause an event, a catastrophic event like the Holocaust. And so growing up first in New York City in the late 40s, early 50s, till I moved out to the suburbs in New Jersey, that event was very impactful. So what's going on in the world in the late 40s? Well, what's going on, it's going to be the beginning of the Cold War in the aftermath of World War II. I wasn't aware of it, but it was the beginning of Joseph McCarthy and his persecution and prosecution of so-called communists. It was a time of actually great prosperity relative to the time that my parents grew up, which was during the Depression. You had the Eisenhower years, and I didn't look at his approval rating, but I think that there was a general feeling that he was quite popular. But it was also a time at Brown v. Board of Education was decided. So there was political unrest and a fight for justice. A lot was going on at that time. And it was also the time of Elvis Presley. <laughs> That's important context. Yes, it was. You were either in the I hate Elvis or I love Elvis. And where did you land? Actually, I landed in the I hate Elvis, but I recently saw the Elvis movie and I realized what a genius he was. So I actually did not hate Elvis, but I guess I thought that was uh, the appropriate stance to take. And if I may ask, your husband, college fellow Fred Hazuri, love Elvis or hate Elvis? I haven't ever asked him that question. I'll ask him that after we get off this podcast. What's your guess? You've been married a long time. I think he would love Elvis. Yes. I think he would have loved Elvis. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to college, as I was preparing for today, I noticed that you were a communications major when you were at Boston University. And my daughter is a communications major. I actually took a little screenshot of it and I sent it to her. I said, see, communications major works. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about how communications major was your choice. 
again, growing up now, we turn to the 1960s, and it was not a time where women had a lot of career options. Neither of my parents had gone to college. They both started working, my mother when she was 15, my father when he was 16, but they always instilled in us a sense of security. But I had made up my mind by the time I got to high school that I was going to have a career. My first option was to go into social work because I think I must have expressed interest in wanting to help people. But I had a cousin who had gone to Boston University in the School of Public Communications, and I started to explore that field, first public relations and then uh, journalism. But ultimately, in college, I ended up graduating with a major in broadcasting and film, in particular, educational broadcasting. It was just starting the Educational Broadcasting Network and Sesame Street. And I thought, what a wonderful way to be able to use media to make a difference. So that appealed to me. But that's not where I ended up. So how, and again, in answer to your daughter, or for me, if I talk to children or grandchildren or high school students or college students, my message is always whatever path you're pursuing at the time, do it with all of your heart, all of your mind, and do your best. Because in the end, doing your best may lead you to the next level or the next path. There is not one path, you know, when you ask young kids, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? You can ask them that, but truthfully, what is a 14-year-old going to know about what he or she wants to be when he grows yeah, up? So, yeah. But my communications major also intertwined with another love of mine that I still have as a love, which is photography. I love the idea of visual images, and you can think as a trial lawyer how much visual evidence makes a difference when you're giving a story to a jury or you're making your case. But I will tell you this, before I went on the appellate court and the Supreme Court, I used to think, oh, of course, why don't these lawyers use exhibits? I will say from my perspective now, it's totally distracting. And for the most part, maybe something you might want to put in your brief, but definitely not something you want to bring into a, an appellate court. Yes. I don't yeah. know if I've answered your question. Well, you did. And I'm going to press just slightly more. What was the pivot point? that shifts you from thinking broadcast journalism, public education journalism to say, mm, I think I'll go to law school. Right. It was probably in my third year of college. And by the way, although I was enrolled in the School of Public Communications, most of my courses were in the College of Liberal Arts. And I had some amazing professors that really gave a worldview and a view of what was going on in our country or what our history of our country meant as far as not being the most perfect country that maybe I believed growing up that we could do no wrong. And one of my projects was to do a documentary, and I chose doing a documentary on legal services for the poor, which was a program that had just begun in the 60s because there was funding for the Legal Services Corporation, and Harvard Law had started a clinic there. And I went and I interviewed and I put together, I never produced a documentary, but I guess an outline for what the documentary would look like. And I thought to myself, 
wow, the law as an agent of change, as an agent of empowering those that were powerless, giving a voice to the powerless. And that idea spurred me to work that summer for legal services in the Lower East Side of Manhattan at a time when to get there, it was probably like an hour and a half ride. I'd go through neighborhoods where there was drug use visibly on steps. It was a very long way, both in distance as well as lives and the more sheltered life that I had. And so that idea of being able to help the poor and the powerless led me to decide that I would go to law school. But here is sort of the funny thing about my naivete. I also looked at the broadcasting profession and realized that it was almost all male. And I said, well, no, I'm going to go into the legal profession. Well, in 1970, when I graduated college, there were almost no women in the legal profession. There were certainly no justices on the Supreme Court or the Florida Supreme Court. And there were very, very few women lawyers, and most of them were in transactional work. So it was this almost blindness to why would I go into that profession, which was so male dominated at that time. And really, even to this day, even though there are many more women in the profession, if you look at the top echelon of trial lawyers, corporations, it's still male dominated. But we've certainly made inroads. So there was a, in a way, it was a good thing that I guess that I didn't have the sense to say, well, this isn't a very good idea if I'm trying to go into a profession where it's going to be safe for me and easy to advance to pick the legal profession. But I'm certainly glad almost 50 years later that I did. But then why'd you do it if you knew it was going to be an uphill battle? When I applied for law school, I didn't know the statistics. I know that sounds naive, but I wasn't aware of that. I get into George Washington Law School and all of a sudden I look around and there are all these white guys in suits and ties <laughs> and I'm going, what did I do here? But what it did for me is being in Washington, D.C., which is where I ended up going to law school, it was just such a perfect place for many different opportunities. And during law school, I worked at the public defender's office doing internship and investigation one summer. Then I went and worked at legal services both during the year and then another summer. Within the law school, they had clinics where you could go to court, law students in court. So I wasn't turned off by law school. I was first very motivated because there are all these guys here in that class. And I put every bit of my energy into doing my best. And I think that one of my strong points has always been my analytical mind and being able to sort of see all points of view. And that really helps you in law school. You don't go and say, here's the answer and just go to it. They want you to look at all the different possibilities. So it was a really great career choice for me. But all I was saying is that it wasn't made with the kind of deliberation, like you may be talking to your children, here you are as a professional. My parents really were in a position to do that. And I didn't know lawyers to be able to help at the time that I made that decision. Who were your heroes back then? Who were my heroes? Um, 
Well, you know, I had one hero and I was thinking about her recently. I'm sure your audience is aware of Helen Keller, who was shortly after she was born, she became deaf and blind, yet she achieved amazing, amazing things in her life and made a difference in so many ways. So she really inspired me, but I don't know that I had a hero in the sense of somebody that I could say, I'm looking up to this person and this is the person I'm going to emulate at that point. I certainly have many heroes now. Who's number one? Fred Hazuri, my husband. Oh, come on. I like that. I like <laughs> but that. But it's really true. Since I've retired, we've spent so much more time together, and I've really had a chance to observe him as now he's a full-time mediator in terms of his common sense and his legal mind and his own passion for justice and how strongly he feels about it. So he's certainly a hero. How many years have y'all been married? We've been married almost 40 years. Awesome. Congratulations. Before you took the bench, you had almost a 20-year career as a trial lawyer. You married a trial lawyer, Judge Hazuri, who was a trial lawyer before he became a judge. You're friends with lots of trial lawyers. You're around trial lawyers all the time. For you, what's special about trial lawyers? What is special about trial lawyers is that they take on some of the most difficult cases. Now, I know we're talking to an audience where it's both plaintiffs and defense lawyers, but I have in my career, I certainly was mostly connected with lawyers that represented the injured party in cases. And what I think about them is that they understand that the legal system only works if you can give, again, it's a different way than legal services for the poor, but in giving those that otherwise wouldn't have a voice, a voice in terms of making a recovery for them if they've been wrongfully injured and doing it with the kind of meticulous preparation that I've exhibited. Now, I'll say as an aside that when I began my legal career and even going into, I guess, the beginning of my appellate career, lawyers weren't allowed to advertise. That has not been a good thing, in my view, for the legal profession. And so while I think that trial lawyers of all types are admirable in their advocacy and their preparation, I can't say that I feel the same about lawyer advertising. So I think it's tough. And I think that the profession is almost overpopulated in certain fields and not enough in the fields that can make a difference, like in the public interest fields, because you come out of law school with such steep debt. So I think that's really tough. So I don't know if I've sidestepped this. I think that there are trial lawyers of all sorts. You know, you got just like in any other profession, the A lawyers, the B lawyers, the C lawyers. That's what's so wonderful about the American college because it's selection. And I think that for this group, professionalism and the highest degree of ethics is foremost. So that's sort of my two cents, five cents, a dollar. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask a $5 follow-up. The issue of the First Amendment protections and lawyer advertising, did that come up before the Florida Supreme Court when you were on the court? The case that came up, I'm thinking that there may have been a couple of different times, but the one that came up was a different First Amendment issue, which was judges appearing or having Facebook pages. 
And I was in the minority in that case, saying that that was wrong for judges to do that, that even though their friends were not friends in the traditional sense, I thought it poor optics to do that. And so I guess that was a First Amendment issue. I'm trying to think if it came up that way. There was another case with the Florida Bar where the issue ultimately got decided that lawyer advertising was protected by the First Amendment. I don't know if it was an 11th Circuit or a Florida Supreme Court case, but I remember when that came down. Well, I think that once the U.S. Supreme Court had given the green light for lawyer advertising, I don't know that there was much choice other than to make sure that lawyer advertising was properly regulated. But, you know, frankly, I think it's been an overwhelming chore for the Florida bar. I don't know how it works in other states, but I don't think that the U.S. Supreme Court, when they decided the initial case, was really thinking about personal injury lawyers advertising. They were somehow thinking that that would give more access to affordable legal services. And I don't really think it's been used in that way, or I know it hasn't. Hmm, Interesting. Let's go to the Florida Supreme Court. What year was it that you were appointed to the Florida Supreme Court? I was appointed at the end of 1997 and started at the beginning of 1998. I heard a, a really excellent interview for anyone that wants a follow-up by American College fellow Hank Cox of you for the Florida Supreme Court Historical Society. And I love the story of uh, Governor Childs calling you up to Tallahassee without telling you you were going to walk into a press conference and be announced as a new Florida Supreme Court justice. It was a shock. I knew I was in the running because it had been narrowed down to four women and one male. And I was called up, but I wasn't told the reason. They didn't say bring your family. I mean, I think they've changed things since then. And so the night before, I was with a couple of friends and they were going over what it could be. And they said, this has to be good news. I said, I don't know. They said they had some more questions for me. So that's what I assume. So I go into the governor's counsel's office. He's talking and I think he assumed that I knew why I was there. So we're talking. And the next thing I know, I am being walked into the press conference. And there is Governor Childs announcing my appointment. In fact, on the way in, the friend that was working at that point for uh, Lieutenant Governor Buddy Childs said, so what is it? What is it? I said, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) And I go in and there it was. And it was a moment, an unforgettable moment. And at that point, the Constitutional Revision Commission was meeting for their 20-year review of the Constitution. They brought me in there and some of my friends and people that I admired were in there. And so that was really, that was a great day, I must say. Yes. I'm not going to say it went downhill from there. But But it may have a little bit. The glamour faded. Well, let's go the opposite. What was the worst day? I think the worst day was the Saturday after we had issued an opinion in Bush v. Gore ordering that all the votes be counted in the state. And I was on my way to a bookstore to buy the Federalist Papers. Somehow I thought that was relevant. And I hear on NPR that the U.S. Supreme Court has just agreed to take the case and to stay the count. 
And it wasn't just handwriting on the wall. It was in indelible ink because once they stopped the counting, which was being done in an orderly way with a great judge leading the counts, they had to stop. And that was the worst day judicially for me. But then it ended up that after the case came back to us, really too late to do anything because of the self-imposed deadline of December 12th, I ended up writing a concurrence at that time. And that was somewhat therapeutic about all the things that could have been done differently or should be done differently. So that felt better. Hmm. Let me pivot. Staying on the Florida Supreme Court, have you ever had to write a decision that you believe was the legally correct analysis that you ultimately wrote a decision on that, that graded you morally? I would think that the death penalty cases would fall into that category because during the time that I was on the court, those were difficult for both the defendant, but also for the victim who cried out for justice. And so I didn't have, it wasn't like I thought about it during my legal career, but I was against it as a young high school student. I recently looked at a paper I wrote because what if they executed someone who was innocent? But if I ever thought that there was somebody that should get a new trial or should not have received the death penalty, I would express my views by writing dissent or a concurrence about why. And, you know, sometimes those have made a difference. And, you know, maybe that person in subsequent years getting, if there was a resentencing, getting resentenced to life. I mean, it's no walk in the park to spend the rest of your life in prison, which is the only other alternative to the death penalty. Florida Supreme Court, what would people be most surprised about if they really knew? The way that, for the most part, at least on our court, there was a very high degree of collegiality. And therefore, even if you were to read some of the dissents, you would think that people would not talk to one another. That rarely happened. I mean, maybe in the heat of the moment, it might. But I think that that would be a surprise. The other surprise was the amount of time that we spend on administrative work and on cases involving the Florida Bar, such as disciplinary cases and rules cases, and that each of us are assigned to chair committees that are responsible for improving the administration of justice. I was always on committees involving children and families. So That's a very large part of your responsibilities. And then also, I don't know if it'd be surprising, but certainly the amount of times you get asked to speak for bar associations, for other groups. So it is a a multifaceted position to have. But fortunately, you're surrounded by great judicial assistant, who I'm still friendly with, wonderful staff attorneys. In fact, that many of them that I stay in touch with and proud of how they've progressed in their own legal careers. Mm. What was your most surprising relationship when you were on the court? People might think the most surprising relationship was the one I had with Raul Quintero, who in many cases disagreed with me. But then in other cases, we ended up reaching the same result. But beyond that, we had a deep admiration for each other. He's a funny person, really good sense of humor, silly sometimes, 
And he really was so enjoyable as a colleague. And I guess people would expect that if you disagreed on the philosophy or the legal reasoning or the result, that you would just not be able to be friends with that person. You know, and you hear these stories sometimes, some of these courts where there's all out battles among the justices. And that never was the case during my tenure. I heard they have daily press briefings when you're a Florida Supreme Court justice. Is that right? We had the very, very best public information officer, Craig Waters, who just recently retired. He had worked for uh, Judge Rosemary Barquette at the time, who went on the 11th Circuit, and now she's doing all sorts of wonderful things on international courts. She's on the World Court presently on a case. And she and then also Gerald Kogan looked at the position of a public information officer early in their judicial careers on the court as a way to make sure that the press had the appropriate understanding of opinions that we were writing, would answer inquiries about that. There was a time when social media started and Craig had thought we should be on Facebook and some of the other colleagues were just astounded by that. But several of us understood that no one's going to sit there and read you know, a 50-page opinion. So having the ability to let the press know opinions that come out and give short press clips of both oral arguments that are coming up and then opinions is very helpful. Now, I don't know about there being daily visual press briefings. If that happens now, that's since I've left. But basically having a person that the press can communicate with directly. And when I wrote my opinions, I would always do what actually Craig Waters suggested would be a press paragraph that you could read the introduction and know what the case was going to be about, but also try to make sure that people understood that it was a complex issue, but here's the bottom line. So there wouldn't be any misunderstanding. I think that's a very important thing to have a face of the court that you're just not there in a black robe, just sitting there like a you know potted plant, so to speak. I'd love to talk to you about the reapportionment case a little bit in Florida, and maybe you can just give a little kind of historical context, and then I'll ask you some specific questions just about the legal journey. All right. So how many hours do you have? <laughs> this is what great <laughs> trial lawyers do. They take very, very complex ideas and complex yes. things and they communicate them in simple terms. Okay. So the Fair Districts Amendment, which was passed in Florida in 2010 or 12, was intended to fight and eliminate gerrymandering in the way that the legislature drew its legislative maps and its congressional maps, meaning that the legislators shouldn't be picking their constituents, but the voters get to decide, and there shouldn't be maps that favor an incumbent or even be partisan-driven. So that was passed. And then I was assigned to be the lead on that case. I was very fortunate to have just the most remarkable staff. We worked months on coming up with what we thought were the standards 
what was the way we would analyze the case, because the way in Florida redistricting works is that there's a provision where it comes to the court and then 30 days to decide whether the map is properly drawn or not. After the Fair Districts Amendment, that time period almost became an impossibility. But because I guess in my life I like challenges, I set out to come up with a basis that I could distribute to my other colleagues for what the standards would be. And then what we had to do in that 30-day period is review every legislative district and decide whether it was gerrymandered or not. It was a daunting task. If you want to ask, you know, what was my most difficult legal case, it would definitely be that. But the opinion, which I have gone back and at least looked at, I'm still amazed that we were able to accomplish that. Now, that was just the initial review. Then it had to go back. The legislature had to redraw the map. And it was only for the Senate map. It wasn't for the House maps. But we gave meaning to the constitutional amendment, which I thought was very important because it was the voters that were speaking that they didn't want gerrymandering to be occurring in our state. And that's the way it worked for the 2010 to 2020 legislative maps with a lot more history in there. But it was I feel like a huge judicial challenge, and I am proud of the court. It was a 5-2 decision, having agreed to the ultimate result and the guidance that we gave. Hmm. Of course, it became much more complicated as there was a trial, there was on the maps, there were issues involving legislative privilege, there are outside players, and that was all the product of some very excellent lawyering, which would lead me to discuss a person that we mutually admired, David King. You say mutually admired, and it's an understatement for me. I would consider him, for me, kind of my legal hero. He's a former fellow of the college who passed recently, but he was always, for me, modern-day Atticus Finch, and then some, it was always David King. Well, he was the advocate for the Fair District's people, and he was magnificent as an advocate before the court. I would love to go back and listen to the oral arguments just to listen to him because he just had a way about him, you know, just sort of a folksy way, but brilliant and not arrogant. You know, there can be those that argue before the court and I would obviously not name names, but you would feel that they were trying to tell you something in that way. Let me tell you something. And not with David. He made a great impression. I think all of us, no matter where we came out, would agree. And then, you know, actually, Raul Quintero was representing the legislature, and he's an excellent, excellent advocate, has a little bit of sense of humor, articulate, great writer, and uh, also humble, which is another wonderful trait for a trial lawyer. Not all of them have that <laughs> humility, yes. but it's important. Well, with David King, one of the things that's always struck me about him is no matter how busy he was or what he had going on, if anyone ever just needed to talk to him, he was just always so kind and generous to anyone who was willing to engage with him and just really an incredible role model for me. And a lot of us, honestly, a lot of us. And what I hear consistent with former Justice Quintero and David is both of them being strong, but still humble. That's correct. Yes. 
Yes, in different ways. And, you know, I would say one of the advantages of having served on the court was the opportunity to hear some great advocacy. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean just because they were arguing before the Supreme Court that they were great advocates. You know, sometimes trial lawyers aren't the best appellate lawyers, but if they can be, it's a gift because they know that record backwards and forwards. Now, any good appellate lawyer should know it the same way, but it's not the same as living it. But I certainly admire appellate lawyers and what they do and how they have to come up with the issues that they believe will catch the court's attention and be the best issues for their clients. I want to go backwards. In 2003, you were diagnosed with and treated for breast cancer, and there was a picture of you that went kind of viral. We didn't even know the word viral at the time, but went all over the press with you coming into oral argument without a wig, and it was a big deal. What I've wondered is, how has that experience of fighting breast cancer, you know, I mean, that's 20 years ago. What's that like for you now? I am glad with every decision that I made from the day I got the initial diagnosis until the end of my treatment. I don't have any regrets. I didn't start out to make this a public issue. What had happened was I had been at this facility that was for juvenile girls in the system, and I was doing a civics lesson with them. And one of the reporters overheard me telling somebody I had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. And she called me later and asked if I would consider letting her follow me and being the subject of an article. And I thought about it. And at the time, I really didn't understand how arduous my battle was going to be. I started at the beginning thinking, oh, I'll be in the back of the breast cancer walk because it was a much milder form of breast cancer, something that's called ductal carcinoma in situ, which could have just been treated with radiation and removal of that area. Well, it ended up not being that. And I ended up with a double mastectomy and then chemotherapy. And I did everything everything because I was going to beat this disease. That's how I approached it. I never felt poor me. So after I lost my hair and I had gotten a wig and I went on the bench for oral argument, it would have been in September. It was hot in Tallahassee. And I'm on the bench and all I'm thinking about is what will happen if it doesn't stay in place or I start sweating or whatever. So I started to feel like this was not comfortable for me. So I talked to my colleagues and I said, how do you feel if I don't wear a wig? Now, in retrospect, what are they going to say? Oh, that would make us feel uncomfortable. They weren't going to say that. And that afternoon, I think, I maybe had one oral argument with the wig on and then took it off. And I remember <laughs> there was a lawyer, Arthur England. He was a former Supreme Court justice and he's deceased. And he was like just talking as if there was nothing unusual. But then there was must have been a Florida bar rules case or something with the president of the Florida bar. And he ended up saying, we are so proud of you, Justice Perrienti, for what you're doing. And I think that overall, that was the feeling. I have to say that when the article in the Palm Beach Post ultimately came out, the front page of the accent section had me draped 
bald-headed with my port while I was receiving chemotherapy. And when I realized that was going to be the picture, I called the reporter. I said, you can't do this. This is like was so personal. But of course, I had let them into the chemotherapy. I just wasn't thinking about that because the other part was acupuncture I did and yoga. I did all these other alternative therapies to really improve the way I would react to chemotherapy. But it was published, and I'm sure there were some people that were maybe surprised or shocked, but most were positive. And Fred's favorite story is this. I was wearing in that picture a beautiful diamond heart that Fred had given me for my 50th birthday. And this woman sends a copy of that newspaper and writes on it, nice necklace. So we still have that because it's like such a commentary about what people look at or what there is. So I think that was very affirming. But I think it was somewhat obviously a low point in my life, you know, certainly scared. But I was very fortunate to be able to do everything to stay strong, both physically and mentally. And that's what I try to tell people. I used to talk to someone and I still would be happy to anyone recently diagnosed about the uh, breast cancer experience. Yeah. You seem incredibly healthy today. Is that fair? That's fair. I would say knock on wood. It will be 20 years in April that I was diagnosed and fortunately no recurrence, but you know, I never know. Well, we're glad you're doing well, and we will continue to be believing that's going to be a good thing. When was your first experience with American College? Do you remember when it was? I believe that the first experience was when I was privileged to receive the Sandra Day O'Connor Award in 2018. It was actually the time that Christopher Wray had just been appointed as the FBI director. So he was still fresh and probably optimistic about what he was going to have to deal with. And it was other amazing speakers there. There was a man that had been terribly disfigured in an accident that was just a triumph. I was just, what I felt about the college, it didn't matter, you know, which side of the case you might be on in your day-to-day lawyering, that there was such a mutual admiration and such a high level of individuals that were members. So for me, it was such an impressive group of people and such an impressive organization. Yeah. I was at that meeting. I think it was in Arizona. Is that right? Correct. Yes. That was when I was inducted into the college. One of the things I remember about that meeting, I remember Chris Ray. I also remember Gene Pettis's introduction of you. Well, actually, when I was looking back today, just to refresh my recollection, I pulled out the journal because they send me a copy. And I was just reading, since it was so great, I'll just toot this part of my own horn. Most impressive is the manner in which he has upheld the integrity and impartiality of the court and still found a way to be an engine of change. Change not through judicial activism, but rather change outside and above her opinions. Change propelled by her relentless work on maintaining the protections of our judicial system so that the word judicial independence would be true to their meaning. And there's more in there, but it was really great. But I had, I wanted to just mention two things in case we don't exactly get to this. 
One is the value of pro bono work, and I still feel very strong about the fact that trial lawyers in particular have unique ability to do pro bono work. I know in Orlando, where you are, there's Guardian at Lightham program. I'm a big advocate for lawyers for children. And I would just urge if the American College doesn't have that kind of initiative about teaming lawyers up with either cases or with a particular case, I think it would be great for the organization and, of course, great for the individuals or groups that got that service. And, you know, now with legal services funding really almost being gone nationally and in Florida, our legal services funding is just way down. It's a time. And I don't think trial lawyers think that that's in their wheelhouse, but I think that's important. But the other one is mentorship. One of the most satisfying things that I did in my legal and then judicial career was mentoring. And in particular, I feel like I won the jackpot. There's a program in Palm Beach County, and I don't know if it's the rest of Florida, but it's called Take Stock in Children. And what you do is you pay a certain amount of money that will fund a college education. Now, cost of public colleges have gone up, but it was going to be like a two plus two community college and then state college. And then you also were obligated to mentor a person who would know that if they stayed in school, got at least a C average that they would have the opportunity to go to college, not knowing it in high school, but when they're in middle school. So I was teamed up with a young woman by the name of Doris Davis when she was in 10th grade, maybe even ninth grade of high school. Today, she is a 41-year-old mother of two, married her high school boyfriend, who's a dentist, and she's a personal injury trial lawyer in Tallahassee Mm. and a member of the Florida Justice Association. So when I think about that, and also my former law clerks, who I know have just done wonderful things in their careers That really, when you think about what you can be proud of, it's sort of like, are you proud of your kids? You know, these are part of your extended family. And really, you've got the best and the brightest of the trial lawyers. They should be actively involved in mentoring. And it doesn't have to be through that program, but what could be done in a particular high school to help those to be inspired and to be there for them. And it can't be a friend. I mean, actually, Doris and I have certainly become friends, but, you know, to give them guidance and hopefully uh, make a difference in their lives. Yeah, that's great. I love your connection to the future careers of all those people that pass through you. I think it's always part of our legacy. And I'm sure your branches out of the Barbara Periente tree are strong. I want to end with something hopefully light, but also interesting. You're married to a smart, talented, successful, confident trial lawyer. You are a smart, confident, successful trial lawyer. You've both been trial judges, appellate judges. How do y'all disagree without killing each other? It's because we have this scale of one to 100. And when we disagree and when mostly I prove that he's wrong, you know, I've said, well, we're 80 percent me, 20 percent you. And then we can laugh about it. We tried some cases together, and as Fred likes to say, we never lost a case that we tried together because his skill set, he's got this common sense and he's a great cross examiner. 
But I was all about the preparation. Like I love products liability cases. So we really together brought a wonderful, strong combination. And I think it makes a great combination in, in so many ways in life. And now with grandchildren and uh, traveling, you know, we just have so much more time to enjoy each other and enjoy life. And for the younger lawyers listening to this, don't wait till you're you know, retired to enjoy life. Please take time for yourselves, for your family, for your friends, and also do meaningful things within your community because you can and should make a difference. Well, that is a perfect way to end. Again, I really appreciate you talking to me. I appreciate the role model you are to many. I appreciate your life of service and your commitment to be an agent of change. It is a, a privilege to be connected with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Episodes drop on Thursdays. Subscribe now to catch every discussion. Thank you for listening.